Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io. All right. How's it growing, friends? Welcome to Office Hours, your source for free cannabis cultivation education. I'm Keisha, and I am co-moderating side-by-side with my good friend, Mandy. How you doing over there? Hey, Keisha. Hey, everyone. We're here for episode 68. We're so psyched to be here with you all today. We're also going live over on YouTube. So if you're logging on over there, make sure you send us your questions and I'll make sure I get those to the team. If you're active on social media, be sure you're following us on all the platforms. So we're on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Social Club. And we've never done this before, but cultivators, we need your help with something. We're calling on you to vote for Arroyo Office Hours for Best Cannabis uh, best Cannabis Podcast of the Year for the MJ International Cannabis Awards happening during MJ BizCon this year. So I'm going to be posting the link uh, right after this in the chats with you all, and we're going to be sharing this on social too. And we'd really appreciate your support. Um, but let's not forget why we're here. We got a ton, ton of your crop steering questions this week, so I'm going to pass it back to you, Keisha. Awesome, Mandy. Thank you. And thank you to anybody out there that submits us for the MJ Awards. We appreciate you. All right. If you're live with us here and have a question, type it anytime in the chat. And if your question gets picked, we will have you either unmute yourself or we will ask for you. Seth and Jason are both back in the house. Gentlemen, how are you today? Good. Feels feels great to be in the office again. Yeah. I was on the road for a few weeks and it's uh, always more fun to shoot these in, in the studio. Yeah, it's yeah. been a minute since we've both been here. The band is back together. All right. Well, are you ready for our first question? We're just going to get like right to it. All right. I got a couple here from Pang Buds. They wrote, hey, yeah, we've been following you guys and getting some of that priceless knowledge in. We were wondering if you could tell us if my humidity is fluctuating between 67 to 72% because of a little oversized AC, which keeps cutting off, would it affect the plants? Temp is also 27 to 29 do you have any help at all for us on how to deal with an oversized AC? What advice do you guys have? Well, as long as that 27 to 29 is in Celsius, then things are probably going to be all right. As far as a, uh, you know, plus or minus two and a half degree swing on a set point because of an oversized AC, I would say that's pretty good. Um, a lot of times the actual sensor that's running a control unit like that is going to be at, you know, plus or minus two degrees uh, or two percent uh relative humidity uh, and in that case I, I mean you're getting as close as you're monitoring and, and that's probably why you're seeing those ranges in Arroyo. if you are using Arroyo's, um it's it's a slightly more accurate sensor than most of the control sensors on the market yeah i mean that's that's pretty typical of what we see looking at grow rooms all over the u.s i mean you see a little bit of fluctuation four or five percent four or five degrees is not uncommon i mean the, the tighter you can get it the better but you also want to consider how quickly you're shutting things on and off and what your system's actually capable of without breaking because you're always going to have rising humidity if you have good transpiration right so it's never going to be exactly one value for any long amount of time it's always going to be going up or going down and uh, if nothing else you might be learning a little bit about how you would want to go about your hvac in your next iteration if you've got too much of an effect too quickly when you turn your when your uh, system cycles on, you might look at having more smaller units that are phased out to give you just a little bit more granular control and have multiple set points. That way, you're only taking out a smaller amount of humidity or temperature at a time. 
Yeah. You know, and that being said, I would way rather be in a situation where I'm oversized and I'm only dealing with a you know, plus or minus two per, uh, 2.5% swing than be undersized and not be able to get rid of the humidity when I've got a, a full canopy and, and lots of transpiration going on in the room. Fantastic, guys. Thank you so much for that. So Pingbugs had a part two here. They wrote in, can you give some standard CO2 targets for stretch, bulk, and ripening? What do you think? I mean, so we usually kind of just go with our rule of thumb of uh, PFD or uh, your light intensity values plus two or 300 per PPMs. So, uh, you know, take those light values and add two or 300 and turn that into your, uh, PPMs for CO2 levels. So if we're at, uh, you know, a thousand PFD when we're in, um, you know, bulking, then let's be at 12 to 1300 PPMs for CO2 levels. Yep. And I think that's one thing we've seen a lot is, uh, just waste when it comes to CO2, you know, the point, the, there's not really a quick point of diminishing returns. There's adequate. And then there's a pretty wide band before we see any negative effects from it. So, you know, if you've got a system that's not turning off correctly overnight, if you are running 1500 PPM, even though you've turned your lights down from 1200 to 900 in your last week of ripening, if you do something like that, I mean, that's usually what we see. And then obviously the other side of it is, uh, we always go back to sensor integrity here. If your CO2 sensor for your system is not very good, you can definitely chase your tail thinking that you might have 1200 when you do only have 900 or uh, vice versa, thinking it's too low and it's higher. So it really comes down to efficiency and making sure that you cross that threshold of enough for healthy plant growth. Yeah. And, you know, matching these inputs is a great way to optimize, uh, you know, your costs and plant growth. So if you can uh, match those inputs with your uh, crop needs, then you're going to be doing a great job. When we look at the basic principles of the photosynthetic equation, we're looking at water plus CO2 catalyzed by light. And so when we want our light levels to be right on, we want our CO2 levels to be right on for optimizing plant growth. Fantastic. Thank you guys. All right, Pang Buds, good luck out there. Mandy, we got some live questions on YouTube, yeah? Oh man, it's popping over there. We're getting shout outs. Um, Poppy Grows gave us a shout out. Love the show. You guys are just amazing. The knowledge you give us is unbelievable. Oh, thanks for that. Um, and then Iron Armor had a question. What are some pros and cons on keeping mother plants in rock wool? Say a delta, uh, say delta six point six and a half on a unislab compared to cocoa five gallon pots. Seth, I'm going to point this one to you. I don't think I've ever seen moms in a rock wool. Uh, I definitely have. Okay. And typically, you know, where we, where we see that kind of happening is uh, when you're cropping your moms relatively quickly, you're getting one or two cuttings off of them. They're alive for, you know, far less than three months, usually even less than two oftentimes. So uh, as far as benefits, I mean, if you only have one thing to order, that's always kind of nice in your facility. If you're already using Delta 6.5s and Unislabs, sure, that's nice and easy. You already have it around. Um, it will allow you to, you know, potentially steer your moms a little more. And obviously if you, uh, have enough volume, you can grow a pretty big mom out of it. As far as long-term goes though, um, neither media are really ideal to keep a plan in for more than three months. So either way, that's probably looking at mom health, but a big part of it is going back and knowing that you need to have good fresh root growth. If you have too big of a media at all, it's going to be pretty stagnant. So even when we look at cocoa, 
Um, you know, there's plenty of people out there still having moms in pretty big pots just because it's really easy to go water them just by hand and not under underwater them. But that can also lead to all kinds of different soil-borne disease problems, pests, and then also inconsistency in your clone crop because your moms are in varying states of health. So in, in terms of which one's better, really neither. It's more about what are your SOPs and uh, how much how much do you like sweeping? And you know maybe another consideration too is the fact that we see a little bit quicker uh, change in things like pH and EC inside a rock wall. So if you have only one injection setup or one reservoir for, let's say, your veg and your mom's, you might want to consider that too, thinking that like, okay, all my pH and dosing is going to be the same between two media. So that simplifies a little bit of my process there. Awesome. Thanks for that. Um, and Iron Armor, thanks for that question. I'm going to keep going down our list. Dylan wants to know, I'm curious about your take on encouraging plants with purple genetics to get as much color as possible. Um, like just temperatures? If so, when do you turn temps down? Day and night? Any other recommendations? So that's, you know, the purpling color is uh, anthocyanin, um, kind of turn, turn, showing its colors in the plant. So it, we see that in blueberries and huckleberries and, and lots of other crops. Um, you know, that the day night difference is, is really a, a huge pusher for those. Uh, I personally like to sometimes keep my day temperatures a little bit higher than I typically see with people just to encourage as much plant growth as possible. Uh, keep that plant metabolism up and I'll drop my, uh, nighttime temps, you know, almost to 10 degrees. Um, just trying to, trying to encourage that, um, that coloring as far as, you know, when it happens, it's going to be a little bit strain dependent because we also want to think about how those cues are affecting, uh, the, the plants ripening. Yeah. I mean, you, you really nailed it there. It really is mostly temperature dependent. And I think, you know, like what you're just touching on Jason, that 10 degree differential is really important. You know, for, for humidity reasons, looking at, Hey, we can't go below 68 degrees Fahrenheit because we just can't control humidity below that point. Then we might not necessarily be run. If purple is the desire, not necessarily max terps, we might be looking at running 77, 78 in the daytime. So we can get as much of a differential as possible. For overnight um but there's always you know like anything a point of diminishing return so a lot of people will like to turn to that 10 degree differential in the last two to three weeks just to ripen you can obviously do it sooner um the sooner the earlier you're running cooler temps you know i mean i guess a good example is if you look at some outdoor plants uh i guess outdoor herb doesn't get shipped around as much as it used to maybe but some of the same strains grown outdoors in northern california versus washington for instance are going to turn out a little differently just because we have a little bit different day and nighttime temperatures. A lot of places in Washington, it's just going to ride lower nighttime temperatures, even all, you know, throughout the summer. And we might see that plant have a super purple expression, but also only get two thirds of the size given all the other same conditions, just because that's been uh, exposed to that cold for so long that it actually affected how much metabolism the plant was able to accomplish during that growing season. So, you know, you, you want to get that 10 degree, degree differential and the earlier you push it for a lot of strains, the more result you're going to get on that purpling. But if you're doing it too early, like I said, that typically comes with a little bit of yield cost associated with it. Awesome. Thanks for that. Um, I was taking notes there. Keisha, were you taking notes? Are you um, trying to bring out that color? Um, 
Not necessarily, but I am taking notes. I don't really know what the color of my my bling, my little seedlings is supposed to be, but I'm, I'm noted. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. That was just such a, such a great re- breakdown. Awesome questions, you guys. Um, Poppy Grows wants to know, I'd love to know some insights on organics when using salt as your base. I use crop salts A and B, and the rest of my inputs are all organic. Um, I know I may not get 100% of the benefits from it, um, but am I getting benefits at all? If we're running in a soilless media like cocoa or rockwool, we might not be seeing them as much benefits as uh, the input of the costs for running those products. Um, if we're in uh, living soil, then uh, there's a good chance that some amount of organics are, are going to be happening. Uh, using a synthetic is just fine in living soil. It actually works pretty good. It's what I do in my garden at home. Um, it, you know, might, might not be the giving me an organic product at the end, but uh, you know, as far as production flavor, all of that in the living soil, you're, you're probably in a great situation. Yeah. I think uh, what it really boils down to there is, uh, is, is your soil actually still alive in your, your, uh, you know, typically soilless mixed media in your grow room. So like when we're looking at living soils, a lot of times we're keeping them in pretty, pretty specific ranges. And a lot of times if we're in, let's say a one or two gallon pot, that's, you know, an organic soil mix and we're drying it down 20, 30, 40% sometimes potentially that might be going too far for the biology in that soil to kind of, you know, go that route for providing full plant nutrition. One thing to think about though, is when you're looking at, you know, organic nutrients, there's, there's a wide range and a wide range of systems with how that works. So are we sourcing those nutrients just from an organic source? Is that why it's got OMRI certification and there's, and is organic, or are we dumping, you know, molasses and compost tea into the soil to feed the bacteria in there so that you know just just because something's certified organic doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to have a positive or negative effect but anytime we're looking at organics especially if it is a you know more of a living soil application it, it really does come down to are you feeding that soil and is it is it still alive because if not if you don't have enough uh, media volume let's say to go just organic so that's why you're using salts again you you a lot of that biology might be dead in there by the time you get very far into the run. And at that point, if, even if you keep supplementing it, if you keep supplementing and uh, everything you're inoculating dies immediately, you're not really going to get a good symbiosis with the plant and necessarily get the kind of benefits. Again, you know, not necessarily any negatives, especially if you apply it right, but not guaranteed benefits um, and probably kind of hard to track unless you've got everything real dialed in and some good sensing technology. Awesome. Thanks for that. Lou had a question. Um, I love utilizing Arroyo. Aw. Do you guys have any recommendations for irrigation strategy when transplanting a 12-day veg plant rooted in half-gallon cocoa bags to a two-gallon cocoa bag when transplanting into flower room bags? Uh, what were the sizes again? Half gallon cocoa bags into two gallon cocoa bags. Um, Twelve day veg plants rooted in. We're probably just going to do another type of rooting in irrigation. Yep, we're just going to hit it with some of those very you know very sporadic, not sporadic, but sporadic in terms of once a day, maybe twice a day early on. 
and ideally have some sort of a sensor, even take a load cell out and make sure you're getting an appropriate dry back. You know, like we always say about 20% of that media before you start to hit an actual P1 strategy on there. And, and really when we say rooting in um, irrigation strategy, that means that we're not getting back up to field capacity um, every day until we see that dry back over a few days to equal the amount that we're trying to achieve. Yep. We got to just kind of slowly, gently introduce irrigation as the plant can actually take it. And that's, that's why being able to monitor your dry back is extremely important in making that process efficient and reliable. And physically what's going on is obviously um, roots are always going to seek out areas that have more water content. So um, obviously when we do put that bag on there, we need to get some irrigation events into that topper block uh, in order to one, keep the plant alive and encourage root growth. Uh, another thing we're doing is get more oxygen in there. And then that water is going through seeping down and those plants are trying to try and follow that water through the irrigation. Yeah. And I mean, since we're kind of on the topic too, if you're uh you do happen to be transplanting something like a half gallon into a two gallon. One thing to probably kind of pay attention to, and if you aren't already using these types of media, maybe move to it, but moving to a stackable pot situation or potentially cutting the bottoms off of those bags and just setting it on top of your two gallon rather than pulling that apart. And there's, there's two reasons for that. I mean, you know, number one, gravity's working for us. Then our roots are going straight down in, they're following the path of water and we can really stimulate that root growth. Uh, the, the other thing, is uh we're not we're not moving a half a gallon of material out of the way to shove that half gallon of colonized root mass down in there so we can really take advantage of that full two gallon pot a lot better if we're not disturbing it and your, your water holding you know typically like if you've got pre-fill bags most brands that i've encountered it's best if you actually you know you hydrate them properly be patient and don't get in there and break it up that can mess with your consistency bag to bag so just setting that on top of there helps you keep, you know, that pack consistency and water holding capacity as uniform as possible across your plant population. And it's faster and easier. Some manufacturers of those uh, smaller, um, you know, starter cubes or, or bags actually have a tear off bottom, uh, which is super cool. Uh, and then just an added benefit, we're going to have just slightly less evaporation from the pot. So it's easier to keep our humidities and our, our water contents in check. Work smarter, not harder, growers. Awesome question. I'm going to keep going down the list. Peter wants to know, shooting for a zero differential in stretch, LST is at 82 um, Fahrenheit. Room temp is at 87 degrees Fahrenheit. What's the nighttime temp supposed to be? Do you guys have any advice? Your nighttime temp uh, with your lights off, probably closer to that 82 value. 80 to 82, right where we want our least surface temp, because without that radiant, uh, any kind of radiant energy from the lights, that least surface temp is actually going to be a lot more similar to the room temp. Um, and that's kind of how you'll, you'll want to dial it. Even at night, we want to keep a pretty consistent leaf surface temp. Awesome. Great notes. B-Town wants to know, seed growth plants has mostly opposite nodes, but after reveg, it changes to alternate. What change, what causes this and is there a way to prevent it? So that, that goes along with like certain semiclonal vari or, uh, mutations that happen. You know, most plants, when we actually go from like, let's say a seedling to, you know, one to two generations of clones in, typically we'll lose that opposite bud formation and go over to alternate. So most of your growing populations out there have alternate bud locations. 
the reveg plant, that's kind of a similar thing where we actually are, you know, we're going outside of what the plant actually would ever naturally do. And that's kind of one of those side effects that comes along with it. Now the exact genetic mechanism behind it, I couldn't exactly tell you other than that's a phase change similar to, you know, what happens when we see hormonal expression differences going from veg to flower. Um, if you are re-vegging, my guess is that you did a pheno hunt, you found one you really liked and you're trying to re-veg that to get some clones off of, like I said, and I, I personally haven't found a strain where it retains opposite bud formation after going into clonal propagation. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. Um, I do have another question that just came in over on YouTube. Um, PNAD wants to know if you have plants that are using more water than others that are in the same zone, um, for example, a plant that is at 85% saturation and the other is at 50% saturation, um, what should I do? Uh, I, I, I usually try to take a step back and think about how can I improve my, uh, un my uniformity, uh, across, uh, the plant population and for the next run, uh, you know, there's not always a lot you can do in there except for maybe trying to go in and add some irrigations or just run the plants that aren't drinking as much, uh, you know, just make sure that they're not getting too dried out. Uh, so really, you know, what I try to think about is in my processes where, what, what contributed to this inconsistency it is my cloning process. Um, dialed in, in which I'm taking the same size uh, cuts, uh, you know, using clean utensils, making sure that all my uh, clone pro uh, clone blocks are saturated out correctly and um, basically, you know, make sure my plant growth is all the same. Is this due to some uh, room inconsistencies as far as uh, temperatures, humidities, light patterns? Um, basically just trying to understand where where in the process did it cause this, uh, in, this uniformity issue? Is it because my drippers might be clogged on a few of the plants? Then let's make sure we get those uh, corrected. Otherwise, you're always going to be fighting that issue. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, that's where having graphs is pretty awesome, especially time series data. You can look back and go, yeah, where, where did that deviation occur? What, what was going on that day? What's everything leading up to it? And then, uh, you know moving forward, how are we going to treat it? If we're looking like Jason said, there's, there's all these points up to then that we can identify. And then after you've gone through that whole laundry list, you know, a lot of times we see, uh, just microclimates in rooms really contributing to that. So when that happens, you try to do as much quantification of that as possible. Go do, go take your spot measurements, try to map out that gradient so you can understand it and how it's going to affect your plants. And then, you know, use that negative reinforcement from going in there and pulling drippers and doing spot waterings, trying to fix different slabs and stuff and all that extra labor as kind of reinforcement to really, really dial it and be on top of it next time. And, you know, for some people, what does that turn into? Well, we might end up, at, you know, adding a lot of hand valves and stuff to our irrigation system so you can go out there and, you know, do some spot waterings and bring everything back into alignment. Uh, for a lot of greenhouse growers, for instance, we've got a long rectangle with air going all the way across it. Version 1.0, your benches are parallel to your airflow. So you've got a gradient across it. After you've uh, dealt with that long enough, you'd probably have a light bulb aha moment where you go, if I just turn this bench 90 degrees, this whole irrigation zone is going to be in the same you know area along that gradient rather than having a gradient along my entire zone. So once you've identified the problem, like I said, just it's tough because a lot of growers are just running and running and running. And it feels like you're always understaffed and never caught up. But 
sometimes that negative reinforcement can be a good source of inspiration to really do better next time. I hope so at least, because if you're stuck in a cycle where you're really, really chasing your tail, I mean, eventually you should try to do something to get out of it. Thank you for that. Awesome. Um, Landon, the outlandish wants to know when lights go off, how much should my humidity differentiate? So, I mean, do you want, do you want your humidity to always match the temperatures that you're going to be shooting for in order to achieve the ideal VPD? Uh, you know, we're looking for uh, smallest variations in VPD as possible. And so when we talk about, you know, maybe if we've got a day night temperature difference, then we do need to um, drop our humidity in order to maintain uh, a good VPD in the room. Um, so that's, that's kind of on, on the, the long range, you know, on the, the shorter range, if we're talking about quick swings, um, you know, the smaller, the possible, the smaller, the better. Yeah. So yeah, VPD really is what we use as our guiding beacon to try to determine what that humidity needs to be at that temperature. And actually, is your laptop logged in, Jason? We can kind of, oh, maybe not. So what, if Jason can get it up quickly enough, we'll kind of just share a little VPD calculator there. And uh, basically, you know, if your temperature is going to go down overnight, we've got to get that humidity down as well to maintain the same VPD value. So, you know, I mean, a good example is trying to not, not run into mold, for instance, towards the end of your run. A lot of times we want to make sure that VPD doesn't go below a 1.0 or a 1.1. Well, at 65 degrees, that's more like 43% humidity. At 75 degrees, we're back up into that, you know, mid to upper 50s, which may be a lot more achievable with your particular dehumidification setup. So, um, to answer that too, it also depends on what your LED or your lighting situation is. You know, in HID rooms, we typically see a bigger lights on, lights off swing. And with LED rooms, we don't have nearly as much input, heat input from the lights. So we don't typically see quite as big of a humidity swing. But when we're trying to pinpoint, you know, where we want to set our values and set points, this is the type of uh, graph we'll go ahead and look at. And with this, yeah, you go ahead and explain it, Jason. Tell me what you're doing. Sure. So let's say we're shooting for a five degree night day diff. Maybe we're middle in the plant cycle. Uh, obviously, we're going to be shooting for a VPD of around 1.2 at that time. And so we can see if I'm at you know 81, 82 degrees for my daytime temps, then we'll want my humidities to be up between about uh, say you know 50 and 60 percent um let's make sure i did that right yeah 1.2 so you know ideally we'd be at let's say 81 and a half and 52 percent humidity now if we go to night nighttime so we're doing a five degree differential then we're at 77 degrees at night and we can see hey if we didn't do anything with our uh relative humidity that our kpa is way too high our vp is too high so We'll need to make sure that we reset that if we want to be at say around you know one to one point two. Now we're at sixty two percent humidity. Yeah, and I, I always like to highlight to people that I'm talking to this about um, a few degrees in temperature fluctuation can mean a pretty big difference in VPD. That's why when we're playing with that, you know, later flower overnight diff, getting down closer and closer to sixty five, even sixty three degrees. Uh, some, sometimes really the difference is you might be able to achieve 68 and not 65. That's, that's kind of the line we're all trying to ride on that ragged edge of efficiency. And 
it's always better to approach it in a way that stays in the safe zone rather than, you know, trying to go to way too low of a VPD and having a lot of risk. And if you, uh, you know, want to use this VPD calculator, it's right there at vpd.arroyo.io. Um, I know a few episodes back, we did kind of a full rundown of, of how you can use it and, uh, it's nice and interactive and you can even use a different, uh, temperature scale if you're in other parts of the world using metric. Yeah. We should have had that up for the, the question earlier. Yeah. We could have just <laughs> pressed the button. Cause I, I don't know metric enough to know what, uh, 26 to 27 degrees is in uh, Celsius to Fahrenheit. So awesome. Thanks for walking us through that. And yeah, you guys that use the tools at your fingertips at your disposal. We do have that VPD chart um, that where you can basically calculate for every phase of growth. Um, awesome. Thank you for that. We're still getting questions over on YouTube. So I'm going to keep going. Iron Armor wants to know what are some pros and cons on using tap water compared to RO water for your nutrient mix? And what's the best way to determine whether it's more cost effective to run tap water or RO water? Uh, it depends on your tap water. You know, where do you live? What kind of water quality are you seeing? And what, you know, I mean, it always starts with a basic PPM assessment, but like, what, what are we seeing for PPM? What is it coming out at? How much is it costing you to treat if you're going to treat it that way? Um, if your incoming water has things like pythium, fusarium, um, high iron. Oh man, there's a whole bunch of things you don't want in your water, but there's also a lot of things that aren't necessarily that bad of a, a situation to be in. I mean, personally, I, I, I use tap and well water. I have over the years, just fine. Uh, where, where Jason and I are at here, generally pretty decent water quality. Uh, there's not like high loads of sulfur in it. Um, you know, I think the, the biggest thing we have is some carbonate load in it that brings our pH up to like around a seven coming out of the well usually. So that's, that's pretty easy to deal with, right? Like if we had like some water that had, you know, come out of a, a sodic area or something and it was super alkaline, like 8.5 or nine, maybe we would not look at trying to use that at all. Really. That might be far too expensive to treat compared to looking at an RO solution, but RO does have some of its own problems. It's totally devoid of ions going in. So you don't have any kind of interaction with uh, your salts going in that might be good or bad. And then it can be expensive. You know, however, if I was in, you know, let's say somewhere near Long Beach <laughs> in California, um, I would probably be looking at using RO because depending on where I'm at, I, I might struggle to get water that is quality that I want without anything that I don't want in it. And also coming in at a certain temperature, you know, I mean, water treatment's very important and it, it really is a, a situational basis. Some places you run into like higher chlorine contents and some tap water. Um, you know, and if that's the case, a lot of times you can just gas that off. You need to be able to let it rest for a day in a res with an air stone in it to get rid of that chlorine. But boy, that's, that's a really, really case by case answer there. Yeah. The, I mean, the really easy way is a few step process. First thing you do is send out for a water quality sample. They're very inexpensive and usually pretty quick to turn around. Um, if you have low nutrient load in there and there's nothing bad, then you probably don't even need to change what type of, um, nutrient composition you're going in with and you won't need RO. If there, you know, there's lots of loads of calcium in there, then you might need to think about how 
uh, that's going to affect your nutrient composition and you might need to get a custom blend for, um, for what you're feeding those plants. Uh, and then, you know, if, if you just don't want to think about nutrients at all and you want to run a stock blend and, and there's too, too much ions in solution coming out of your well, then, uh, you know, do an RO and you'll know that the only thing that's really in your water is what you're adding to it. Yeah. And you know, I, I like to highlight to people too, this is, this is one of those areas, unlike, uh, sending plant tissue samples to a lab somewhere or anything like that. That seems like it might be kind of scary. You can get pretty standard, even home water tests. Uh, a lot of the things that we're looking out for that are not good for plants are generally not good for people either. So that that's also another way to put it. You know, I used, I used Los Angeles as an example there, but uh, that's just because I know I've been to places where the hot, the tap water comes out hot, you know, and basically no one in that area drinks it. Okay. Well that, that's a, that's a good starting point to say maybe, maybe we should really look into water quality and it's, it's worth your money too. And time to invest just that little bit in it. You could have, if you have a fundamental problem with your water quality and you can't figure that out, you can spend a lot of time and money chasing around different problems that aren't really a problem. You need a solution for the real problem. If it's water quality. There we go. Thank you for that. Poppy grows wants to know what's a good way to start the dry process like, should I do lower humidity first few days than 60, 60, or what's the best? Um, I've had bud rot the last few runs and every dry sense, it's just been nerve wracking. So get some time series data as far as what your humidity looks like in the room. Um, if you can't maintain your target humidities for the first few days, then I would usually try and start that room almost as dry as possible. Uh, and then when you put plants in there, it's instantly going to go uh, above your target, but you're doing everything you can. Uh, you know, long-term is in, invest in additional dehumidification. And we see this quite a bit when we get uh, clients turned on to crop steering. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll hit a run that's just got way more plant matter than they're used to putting into their dry room. And now they're having challenges, uh, keeping, keeping that dry room in, in, in tune for the, the right dry cycle. And they'll, they'll see some of the issues that you have. So we do see this a lot. And, you know, as you, if your dry room is, you know, under capacity or just at capacity, as you start to improve uh, cultivation processes, uh, you'll want to make sure that you're also improving the HVAC capabilities in your dry rooms. Yeah. And, uh, you know, sometimes if you're, if you are running into that, like Jason said, up your DHU capacity, um, try to get sensors in there and evaluate how short you are though. I mean, anytime you are going, going over that 60 to 62 RH in your dry room, that means you're under capacity at that point in time. Right. So even if we, you know, like we can try to start with the room as dry as possible, but that's going to get overwhelmed as soon as you fill it. So at the end of the day, it's either, you know, expand that dry space, add your DU capability and probably if you have sensors in there and you see it going wild, be prepared to just go buy some rolling dehumidifiers or throw, you know, a good old quest on a cart or something <laughs> to do what you got to do to get it in there and maintain. But, um, I know personally I've been, have having been in an experience where we're doubling our yield over about two years. Um, that was a constant problem we ran into. And unfortunately the only solution was buying more DHUs and then figuring out how we were going to power all of them and make everything fit in the room. It's a, it's an unfortunate limitation, but I think compared to five or six years ago now, we can look at, you know, no, no one had a great idea of what kind of yields they were going to get. And a lot of people were coming out of never producing more than let's say 30 to 50 pounds at a single indoor run. 
So now we have a better idea of like what kind of capacity we can see off of a given square footage, given height and power limitations. Yeah. And we've, we've got a, a feature in there. If you are using Arroyo, you can um, enable the data type of absolute humidity and just, uh, you know, see how much more water you need to get out of that room. Yeah, that's, that's actually super helpful, especially in the dry room when you can look and, it, you know, when you're thinking about how you're sizing your DHU, anytime you can get some kind of quantification, if you can even look at like, all right, I got X amount of cubic meters in there and there's X amount of grams per cubic meter. Start doing a little math, grams to milliliters, and it's not a perfect, uh, it's a good conversion. It's not a perfect representation because that's static, not dynamic, but you can get a rough idea. Like, hey, if we've got to get out 20 gallons of water from the air in this huge room is, uh, is a 50 pint. Is that enough capacity? No, <laughs> you know, so that, that's kind of where you start looking to comment here, Bill, I don't know if you want to unmute yourself, but he wrote blood rotten happened in flower dry off the off of VPD. And yeah, that's, that's another thing we see a lot too, is bud coming in. That's, already got it setting in essentially you just can't quite see it from the outside yet and then once you chop it and hang it upside down in a nice damp dark room um you know that plant's got no immune system left as it's dying so that mold's just going to take over uh so yeah trying to get it out and then also looking at you know going farther and farther back why was your plant in that you know healthy plants always the best defense right healthy plant in an environment that won't grow it so you can track it back. That's another thing we see sometimes is uh, excessive flushing and a few other things that really cause a decline in plant health during ripening. Bilbo, yeah, you want to say something? I know in the Arroyo, hi. I know in the Arroyo ecosystem, you can uh, set tolerances. I know that in the new notification uh, rollout, there's a lot more customization that you can do. So if you are seeing bud rot, my hypothesis is that it's likely to have occurred during a point where you were out of spec for a certain period of time. Uh, it could be different with different cultivars, different rooms. So knowing your room with time series data and then being able to set alarms that are real alarms that you actually will respond to could help you have more confidence going into your dry, knowing that you didn't spend too much time out of spec. Absolutely. Unfortunately, a short amount of time out of spec on anything can, you know, really let uh, just basically plant disease, mold, things like that set in. And once once they've set in, you're, you're not going to get rid of it short of cutting it out of the room. And the shorter time that you're out of spec, the less likely that you're going to have these issues. Um, so there's many, many, many of cases where we hear from clients that because of uh, a quick alert, they were able to respond to um, those parameters being being outside of the ranges that they need. And then they go in, you know, sometimes middle of the night, and go fix the problem. And they, you know, they've saved quite a bit of product from uh, being ruined. And uh, also on that, when you get into harvest analytics, you can take a look and it'll tell you how much time you, uh, that crop spent outside of the target ranges. And so if you're trying to compare a run that turned out awesome to a run that was uh, maybe lackluster, go, go look and see if it was due to a uh, time out of spec. Yeah. And, you know, just cover all your bases too. Like if you're in a, a relatively sealed indoor environment, make sure it's actually sealed and that you're filtering your incoming air. You know, where, where are you at? Are you in an agricultural area? 
because if so, we're going to see a little bit more plant diseases. It turns out a lot of crops share those. So, you know, cover your bases, make sure everything's clean. And again, check your plant health and don't there's, it's going to be hard to pinpoint exactly where it's at because the dry room is like the last part of that phase. Right. I mean, it could be something as simple sometimes as not understanding that your dew point up at your ceiling is different than your dew point down where your plants are. So you're getting condensation on the ceiling, dropping down onto your buds. You've got buds that are just soaked, but Hey, your environmental sensors say it's fine at five and a half feet off the ground, right where your canopy's at. Thanks for chiming in, Bilbo. Yeah. Awesome. I love this discussion. Oh my gosh. And yes, thank you for bringing that up. Our notification center did just get a whole new refresh and yeah, you have more customizability and like that visibility really does help. I didn't mean to cut you guys off if y'all wanted to add something. Yeah, I think we covered it. I love the (laughs) notifications. Um, All right. We are still getting our questions. So Lou wants to know, when using a dissolved oxygen generator, what PPM would you recommend feeding in flower at? I'll be honest. I haven't messed with a dissolved oxygen generator. No, oh, I've definitely seen, uh, you know, some of those air bubblers and or nano bubblers uh, and all that stuff as far as getting, uh, you know, some amounts of dissolved oxygens. I actually haven't done much recording of what those numbers are. I think typically more dissolved oxygen is better. Um, I don't know that you can get too much. And that's why, you know, there are systems like nanobubblers where they're trying to uh, expose as much surface area to the oxygen um, gases in, in solution there. So I, our apologies. I, as far as PPM, I don't think I'm in a position to recommend what's just right. Yeah. And I think when you're looking at that too, I know one thing and in, in the, like the, we could probably, if Jason and I looked hard enough, find you a theoretical op, optimal PPM, right? I'm sure if we actually looked at just some sales literature, we could see what people are really looking out for, for that. But I mean, one thing to consider with the uh, enriched oxygen like that is what are you going for and what is your system like? You know, if you're in a deep water culture system where we're running, you know, let's say a, a big nursery, we've got all these huge moms in deep water culture that we're wanting to keep us fresh. We've got all this shared media essentially, cause we've got hundreds or thousands of gallons of water that's going around the facility, getting recycled. That's where we want to make sure we have a super aerobic environment and we're not, you know, being at risk of infection. Um, If you can store your water, you know, out of light in a very reasonable temperature, sub 70 degrees, and you're in a drip irrigation situation, as long as you have a general air stone in your reservoir. um, One of the things that happens is when that water comes out, it's actually pulling oxygen into the root zone. So we're not only relying on the, the dissolved oxygen in the water. Um, we, we're also using physics to help keep the roots oxygenated as well. Awesome. You want to speak to your comments on this? Well, back to laminar airflow. Uh, oh yeah. You were talking about yeah, dissolved oxygen. Well, it was, it was more of a question as I sometimes lose my train of thought as well. Um, I know that facultative aerobes can be a factor in high dissolved oxygen content. Like anything else, there's a, there's a certain balance that we want to hit. Um, I use uh, an agitating. So on irrigation, a pump comes on that agitates the fluid, I would say excessively and attempts to inject your more oxygen into the fluid. And that's as far as I go. I'm not monitoring ORP 
basically because if I continue monitoring more things, I'll become obsessed and probably have another paralysis. Yeah. ORP, you know, that's, that's pretty important. We're looking at water quality and how easy it is for different microbes to grow inside of it. Yeah. That's basically what we're looking at. Um, you know, a, a good reference guys, as we grow, you know, outdoors where all these plants come from, we grow them in mud, essentially. Uh, it's just wet dirt. Um, if you go back and look at other industries that rely on heavily oxygenated water, such as like the fish hatchery industry or, uh, aquariums, anything like that, they're typically using just like you said, Bilbo, essentially an agitation pump. They got a reservoir with a waterfall above it and that water tumbling into the bigger res is generally oxygenating everything they need to, or they'll run through, you know, an agitation chamber, which is just a cylinder full of all kinds of different blades and vents. So it tumbles the water around as it goes through it. Yeah. And to answer your question, ORP is related to uh, dissolved oxygen. They are different. Uh, dissolved oxygen is just the amount of oxygen uh, as that is in solution in the, the irrigation system um, or batch tanks or whatever. And then uh, oxidation reduction potential, ORP, is uh, more about water quality. Yeah. How, how easy is it to grow uh, things in there, basically? Go for it, Bilbo. Let's say I had a bunch of good and bad bacteria that was potential in my facility due to, you know, cleanliness, different solutions, uh, environment, the outside, outside contributing factors. How I'm linking it together is if I have a bunch of good bacteria that are going to do better in a more aerobic environment, and I do have some... Uh, a higher ORP potential to reduce that oxidation potential as its namesake. Isn't it then a balance of the two to kind of maintain a certain ORP and maintain a certain level of dissolved oxygen, regardless of our pumping ability or injection of oxygen? Yeah. At the end of the day, I mean, you're absolutely right. We do have good bugs essentially or good microbes that work with us in an aerobic environment. And that's also, I mean, if we go back to like when we were talking about organics and living soil, that's also part of why it's very difficult to maintain those systems is because we're looking at, you know, fairly narrow ranges to maintain that balance sometimes and keep what we want to keep alive and what we want to keep dead, dead. So the best we can do is try to get, you know, a simple solution to keep that oxygenated and then also realize that, you know, when we're, we've, we've got something in a facility like that, you're like, Hey, we, we've got fusarium in here. You know, any, anytime you have anything like that, you've got to be on a constant journey to find the, the point of infection and start to treat that as well. You know, you can, uh, if you've got contaminated water, let's say you can get so far with basic water treatment, but at a certain point, you, you probably need to go to a better filtration system. If you've just got water that you, your treatment system isn't handling, you can only dump so much of any kind of chemical in there before we're at a concentration that's affecting plant health or throwing something else off in our water. Awesome. I love this discussion. Oh my gosh. We are like really getting close to the end of the show. So I'm going to keep going down our list. Landon the Outlandish wants to know, have you ever had a plant start with three? I'm going to say this word wrong. Cotyledons. Oh my gosh. And then start with two tops, zero training, minimal environmental stress. And also tell me how to, how to say that word, right? Please. Oh, you're pretty good. Cotyledon. Um, personally, I've never seen one start with three. I've had them fused, <laughs> but, uh, 
that's that's super interesting. I would I would want to watch how that plant definitely flowers out and see what it does. Uh, sometimes though, you can also get uh, multiple embryos inside of a seed, so that could be part of what's going on too. Is you actually do have essentially two plants that are growing together somewhat as one. So kind of cool. Um, probably not a trait that you're going to be able to get passed on in seed or in clone, unfortunately. Oh, it's it's kind of like cool. when you got a uh, like when you ate your twin or whatever. How does that work out? Two two headed people don't have two headed people. No, no, just me? like when one you, just like your pinky is all you got from, left from your brother or whatever. You know, I've seen but, a like a strawberry that looked like it was like two and three strawberries like fused together, kind of like that. I don't know exactly. if it's the same. Yeah, interesting. Okay, good questions over there. Um, Diane also had a question. Um, why, when we increase our VPD in the last two to three weeks, um, why does that make the plants drink more? Um, and will that make us water them more? Let's see. Uh, we'll start there. Uh, I mean, it depends how much higher you're going with your VPDs. So usually, I mean, once these plants are mature, like 1.2 is ideal. Uh, even towards the end of flower, even in ripening, you know, being at 1.2 is, is ideal. That being said, uh, a lot of times to prevent, prevent molds, mildews, you know, if we don't have perfectly ideal airflow in there, uh, we do, we don't have a, a really well controlled environment, uh, or we just can't keep our humidities down low enough to, to match some of those, then we are trying to push it up, uh, you know, as high as possible as, as high as possible to like 1.4, maybe 1.5. If you really have issues, um, in some of your cycles, um, if they are drinking more then then give them some more water. Um, but typically actually, uh, you know, if, if we start getting our VPDs too high, our, our stomates are going to start closing up to prevent that plant from drying out. And so we'll actually see just a slight loss or slight, slight decrease in the amount of, uh, transpiration and water use. Yeah. And, and that's a lot of things. One thing to remember too, is this is all dependent on what your actual leaf surface VPD is. So that depends on what your light source is doing, how hot the actual leaf surface is. And the simplest way to think about it, you know, not knowing, like for me, not knowing a bunch of other factors around this question in your particular grow is uh, if we look at VPD and we think about a plant as a straw <laughs> and the air is sucking things through it, the higher the VPD up to that certain point, like Jason said, once we hit like an actual leaf VPD of above 1.4, 1.5, that's when we start to see, uh, you know, the stomachs losing efficiency, starting to close up. But essentially, the air is pulling on the uh, the plant a lot harder. It can pull more water faster because there's more energy potential helping that water move upward through the plant. Awesome, great advice. And yes, we do have an article that goes all over VPD. Um, so that's over on uh, arroya.io. That's in our knowledge base articles. You'll find it over there. And uh, I'm gonna go down to Golden Child's question. Is crop steering possible using a soilless mix with peat, perlite, and cocoa? If so, do you have any tips or suggestions on applying crop steering to a soilless media versus straight cocoa? Yes, pretty much all the tactics are, are still going to be working for um, a blend like you mentioned. Yeah, uh, you know, cocoa came on the market because uh, peat, peat moss is not the most environmentally friendly production. Um, takes a long time to regenerate those peat bogs. So cocoa is uh, basically a straight up replacement for peat moss in the market. 
And uh, otherwise, I mean, you're, you're just looking at the original soilless mix before we were, <laughs> before cocoa became a hot word or rock wool, you know? Um, yeah. Listen to, listen to back episodes of the show. There's plenty of advice on what kind of irrigation strategies you're going to want to apply and then get yourself a sensor and see what, what your water content's looking like. You know, I mean, I would say maybe one of the biggest struggles you'll have is make sure your pots are all packed pretty consistently. You know, if you're, if you're, if that's what your mix is, my guess is you're hand potting. So just try to make sure you're doing, you know, dotting your I's, crossing the T's and taking care of things. Awesome. Thank you for that. Um, Lou wants to know, I found three, three quarter seeds popped off a cultivar, um, have variegation carried through cloning from seed mother. Have you seen true variegated plants flower before? I've, I've seen variegated plants flower before. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yes. Is it a, is it a good or a bad trait? It's cool. It's interesting when you find it out there in the grow room. Um, if you run a big enough population of plants long enough, you'll definitely see some interesting semiclonal variation like that. Uh, one of my favorite ones, aside from seeing some variegation, is uh, like the polyploid nugs. It's where you get some chromosome doubling like just in one branch of the plant. So you'll have, just like you said, the fused strawberries, Mandy, two fused nugs or three sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, uh, just a, an, an anecdote because uh, Kim Dog is is one of my most favorite strains. Uh, we had uh, Kim Dog. Our cuts had a very consistent um, half leaf variegation. So uh, one half of one uh, leaf, um, the little you know the flags of the leaves would be variegated with white, and it was pretty consistent throughout the the crop. And one of the the first really big installs I did for uh, Arroyo was uh i was in the room and i'm installing some sensors and i saw that variegation and i go hey hey, is this kim dog and he's like yeah it's kim dog says you know thousands of miles away and they had probably a similar cut from uh up the chain oh my gosh amazing i love that great questions everyone um i think we have a couple more minutes and keisha i think you have some instagram questions so i'm going to pass it back to you Fantastic. Thank you, Mandy. On and popping today, even though Seth's not wearing any shades, we are blinding y'all with science. It's so good. Okay. We got this one submitted here. Uh, Leland wrote in, good day, legends. What is your strategy for calculating how much CO2 to put into a room? Currently, our flower rooms are only getting around 800 ppfd at canopy height and around 1400 ppm of CO2. Do you think this could be causing some issues? Cheers. I mean, if, if 800, um, for the light levels is as much as you can get, um, then no, you could probably drop your CO2 injection a little bit just to optimize, uh, input costs, but having CO2 up at 1400 while your lights at 800 isn't going to hurt the plants. No, you're, you're totally in the safe zone. Probably just throwing some change out here and there. Cool. All right. Leland, keep us posted. All right, I got another question here from someone who wanted to talk about CO2 enrichment. So my simple question is, do we need to turn our CO2 off at night? And can we connect the regulator to the lights timer to both go on and off at the same time? 
Yes. Yes. It, it is good to turn your CO2 injection off at night. So during the day, um, plants are transpiring. Um, so they're using up CO2 and at night plants are actually respiring. And so they are actually going to be, uh, releasing some CO2. Um, basically when we're going through photosynthesis in the day, we're building sugars, um, that the plant is going to use for growth. And then at night during respiration, it's actually going to be using some of those sugars, um, for plant growth. Yeah. And you, you also are not going to use any CO2 in the room at all. So if you do are in a situation where you can't trust your timer to turn off and be the sensor overnight, cause it should hit your set point and turn off. If your set point was like the previous question, 1400, your, your, uh, <laughs> your controller should turn it off. However, if it's not connecting it to a light uh, switch might be a good idea. I would definitely check with your specific controller manufacturer, read the instructions and see if it defaults to off when you cut power to it. Probably just ensure a little bit of proper equipment operation there. Awesome. Great advice, guys. All right. Good luck out there with that one. Going to keep it moving here. Um, and just a reminder, folks, we got a few more minutes. If you have a live question, now's your chance. Solomon King of Kings wrote in, I'd be interested to see the difference in water holding capacity between the different grades of cocoa core that your sensors are used in. I prefer a much more generative mix with larger chunks like Rococo. I find that you'll have better irrigation uniformity the more often you irrigate. Coir, that's cocoa peat, smaller fibers and dust, tends to be way too wet, and because of this, you don't want to irrigate often, causing uniformity issues between bags. I wanted to see if you saw this on the data as well. Absolutely. So usually I, I mean, for, for most mixes from manufacturers, there are some that are blended that kind of fall in between, but usually we'll see, um, water holding capacity or, or um, field capacity for the chunkier stuff, right? About that 45% water content range. And then the stuff with the, the smaller pit, the ground up stuff, the, the coffee ground cocoa, if you will, is, uh, usually up towards 60 to 65%. Um, and as far as which one I prefer, it comes down to what, uh, size media that I'm using. So if I'm on a one gallon cocoa, uh, and I'm going to be trying to grow big plants, I'll definitely want to be at that 65% water holding capacity. Cause I'm going to have some fairly massive drybacks. And since I will be at that one, um, or that 65% water holding capacity, uh, I can still irrigate quite a bit cause I've got a big plant that's using a lot of water. Um, so yeah, great point what you're saying there, but if I'm on a two gallon, uh, a lot of times, uh, it's, better to be at that lower water holding capacity um, so that we can irrigate more often. Yeah. And, you know, just uh, depending on where you're at and what your experience is using something like the Rio cocoa is going to be a lot more, just like you described, it's similar to running say a 70, 30 cocoa perlite blend. So, you know, probably think about what you're comfortable with and how tight you want to ride the line, you know, a uh, two gallon Rio cocoa pot with 45% water holding capacity is going to be, you know, less, I don't want to say efficient, but it's going to hold less water than a two gallon that holds 65% water capacity. Right. So we can, like Jason said, we can effectively get a bigger spot, bigger plant out of a smaller pot with the higher ratio. However, we got to be a little more careful about our rooting and procedures and, uh, just watering in general, a little more precise. It's a lot easier to run a one gallon high water capacity cocoa bag with a sensor than it is to run one without it. That's for sure. We'll always say that. And then if your irrigation system has any kind of unreliability or anything like that, that bigger pot's usually going to give you a little more buffer room 
on, uh, you know, potentially missing a afternoon irrigation or something like that. You know, and anytime we go down to a smaller and smaller volume of water, that gives us the opportunity to irrigate more and more for a given size plant. But then everything kind of gets to be a little bit more technology dependent and we're already pretty technology dependent. So anytime we can put some redundancy in the system and, you know, pad it. And so mistakes either, you know, don't happen or if they do, we're prepared, then it's okay. I'd always rather have a, a less high performance looking grow, but never have a plant wilt on me. Then I would run it right at the red line all the time and then have a power outage or some equipment failure. And then I lose a whole bench or something like that. Yeah. And let's just do some, some quick math here. If we've got uh, one gallon uh, coffee ground cocoa, uh, if you will, and our holding capacity water or uh, field capacity for water content is uh, 65%, then we have 0.65 gallons of water that can be held in that media. Now, if we're in a two gallon of chunky cocoa, then we'll have, you know, water holding capacity of 45%, we'll be at 0.9 gallons of, of water in that substrate at field capacity. And that's, if you are thinking about switching media at any point in time, it's really good to take that into account when you're trying to compare, you know, side by side, like, do I run the Rio one cocoa or Rio one gallon versus the Dutch plant in one gallon, even though I'm, you know, running into different water holding capacities. I want to really take that into account when I'm looking at the size of plant, I hope to grow out of that media, you know, cause if we go back to like, let's say, you know, the classic five or seven gallon pot that was approaching 50, 50 cocoa perlite, our water holding capacity is what Jason, 38% or something like that. 35, you know, it's just, you really don't actually have that much water in that space at that point. Um, but you're very well aerated and you do have enough that you've got a pretty big buffer. You just, it's just, if we grew plants in a five gallon, the way we're growing them in a one gallon, you know, we'd have like 12, 15 foot tall plants. Wow. Y'all, this episode was a wealth of knowledge. Amazing. Um, Mandy, before we wrap it up, anything else on YouTube? Oh my gosh. Thank you guys for all the questions, all the shout outs. Oh my gosh. It just popped off over there. Uh, so such a good show again. Thank you. Yeah, so good. All right. Well, before we go, we're going to end this on literally a high note. We are proud to announce that the Aurora Swag Shop just went live. You can check it out at aroya.shop. And in the next few days, we're going to be releasing special collection shirts, just like the one you see Seth wearing right now. So y'all want to head over there and get fitted. This is this flyness is available to you now. So get some of that. <laughs> All right. So then Jason, anything else before we wrap it up? Have a great day. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you, Seth and Jason, for another excellent episode. Great conversation. Mandy, thank you for your amazing co-moderating skills. And producer Chris, thank you for everything you're doing behind the scenes. We appreciate you. Thanks to everybody uh, for joining us for this week's episode of Aurora Office Hours. We do this every Thursday. And the best way to get answers from the experts is to join us live. If you're ready to learn more about Aurora, book a demo on Aurora.io. One of our experts will tell you all about how it can be used to improve your cultivation production process. Got a topic you'd like us to cover on Office Hours? Post questions anytime via the Roya app. Drop your questions in the chat or on YouTube. Send us an email at support.aroya.metagroup.com or DM us. We are on all the socials. We want to hear from you. After the show, we'll send everyone in attendance a link to today's video. It'll also live on the Aroya YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, and share while you're there. See you at the next session. Thanks, everybody. Bye.
Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io.